0: Present Tense Podcast by Greenbucket Press. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of Present Tense Podcast. I'm the host and producer, and markham bailey in season two we'll be offering stories of creativity and transformation from artists midwives regular citizens turned warriors to save the last wild places in alabama and more i hope that you'll join us as we explore what inspires people to create and to interpret their experience as beings in ways as particular and as typical as each of us. In the spring of 2018, I received a message from a writing colleague, Carrie Madden Lunsford, director of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She asked if I'd be interested in interviewing poet Erica Dawson while she was in town for a reading at UAB, and I said yes. We headed to Revelator Coffee downtown and talked over hot drinks and sweets. I asked her about what calls her to craft poems and the power of the poet in society, her view of the writing workshop process, the MFA in creative writing, her relationship with words. Over the next hour, I had the deep pleasure of meeting her prodigious intellect and humor, her commitment to poetry and to the power of poetry and the transformation and betterment of society. As I listened and recorded, I was so glad that I was right there with her. Her third book of poems, When Rap Spoke Straight to God, will be published this fall by Tin House Books. For her complete bio and more about her work, go to our website at greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. I hope that you'll subscribe to Present Tense Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a good review so that others can find us. You can listen online at greenbucketpress.com slash present-tense-podcast. Please like us on Facebook and connect with us on Instagram.
1: I think, I mean, I think you could always reach more people. It's just trying to find a way to give them like a... An entry point or a gateway into the conversation, but you know, I think um, I think questions like some of the ones you have here, in terms of what are my relationship, what's my relationship with words, like why do I write? You know, what's poetry for? And I think when people can start to understand that it's it's it really is for the people, um, then they don't have to feel scared of it. I think people get intimidated. Um, and they think it's sort of, like you said, elevated or it's fancier than they are. They're not smart enough to understand. And, um, I just want to like walk around with books of poetry, not my own, but other people's and just like slide to a stranger. Like, just, just, just read the first 10 pages. If you don't want to read more, you don't have to. But yeah, I think, I think we just need to make it accessible. That was the best chocolate chip cookie I've ever had in my entire life. It was amazing. (laughs) I think I first understood that I was a poet when I was in college. Um, I think I had always considered myself a writer because when I was young I used to write stories. I did used to write poems and my mom would put them on the refrigerator and stuff like that. But I was, it was a very solitary kind of thing. You know, I would write in my room and maybe I'd show my parents or my brother, but but nobody else. Um, And it was the same way when I was in school, too. You know, we would have to write stories for English class or something, but um, the teacher was the only person who would read them. I think when when I got to college and I first wrote, like, the first poem that I was proud of... um, One of my classmates came up to me after workshop and said uh, that she was really inspired by it and that um, it made her think that she could open up and be honest about an experience that was difficult for her. And there was something about that connection that made me feel like, wow, you know, I'm a poet. Because for me, being an artist of any kind means that you're entering into a conversation with your audience or your readers or your listeners or whomever, it's all about that exchange of, of experiences and feelings and to get someone else to think about their own world in a different way based on what you've read. So after that moment, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in love with this. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is who I am. Um, and it was really the first time that I felt like I had had a real conversation about, about the power of poetry with somebody. What calls me to craft poems? Uh, everything. <laughs> I, would, I would write all day, every day, if I could. Um, but usually, for me, my poems start as questions. There's something I'm thinking about, or there's something that's bothering me. And and I feel the need to explore it, to sort of investigate it or examine it. So it's like you know, well, why is our world so screwed up? <laughs> well, let's you know take some time and really try to think about think about that, and you know try to create images again, so I can enter into a conversation, you know, with readers and listeners, and they can start to think about things too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it usually starts with me being curious about something. There's some sort of line of inquiry, um, and then I write. Almost exclusively in traditional forms, and I think that that's just a way for me to organize the chaos of my expressions. If that makes sense, um, it's you know just I'll just use a a, a recent example because it's fresh in my mind. I um, on Valentine's Day I didn't have a valentine which isn't unusual but um i just got sort of interested in this holiday and how much pressure it puts on people in our society and then if you're alone you feel as if there's something wrong with you so it's like why have we done this to ourselves with this cards and candy and things like that and so i was like well i'm gonna write. Like an anti-Valentine's Day Valentine's Day poem, and I thought it would be appropriate that it would be a sonnet, um, you know, because it's a traditional love poem. And so I went and tried to write the most like sort of subversive sonnet that I could. But having those rules of that iambic pentameter and um, and those end rhymes and that big that big volta um, in the middle or at the end really kind of helped sort of organize my 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 anger and my disappointment and depression. So. Um, it's a, for me, traditional forms, um, are a way to, to, to provide shape to things that seem sort of amorphous or, or unmanageable in my mind. Um, but I, I always want to write poems. At this point, it's really just more about when I have the actual time to dedicate to it, which is less often than I'd like it to be. Poetry is, is incredibly powerful, and I might argue that it's, it's our most powerful, form of the written word because good poetry, the best poetry in my opinion, really I mean, it's so focused and and crystallizes ideas and moments in history and patterns and tragedies and all of these things into, you know, a relatively microscopic amount of space. And, you know, to be able to create that much force with language just through focus and brevity I think is amazing and you know I hope that a lot of people have had that experience where they read a poem or they hear someone read a poem and it feels like it jumps right into their soul and then you can't shake it off and of course that happens with novels and films and paintings and dance and things like that but um, there's, there's something about the concision and the precision of poetry I think that makes it incredibly powerful and you know I don't know that we realize that power at this point in time, but if you think back to earlier periods in our, our culture, and then of course in in other cultures, um, I mean, poetry was a was a game changer. It um, you know inspired social change and in interactions, and it was political and. I tell my students all the time, I'm a, I'm a sort of Shakespeare, you know, cavalier poet buff. And they're like, oh, it's so boring. And it's like, no, it's not. If you really dive into it, so much of it is political and sexual and about gender and power. And it's so powerful then because, you know, again, thinking of Shakespeare, you just had some people who were, you know, interested in seeing a play and then they didn't know it, but they were seeing poetry being performed. And, you know, when they got excited about something, that's that's an amazing strength, I think, that that, that poetry has and that the poet has. And I think now, um, probably more so than ever, uh, in my lifetime at least, I think people are really starting to understand the power that poets have Since since Trump was elected. We've had so many... You know, anthologies come out. Um, I was lucky enough to be in one called um, "Resistance, Rebellion, Life" that Knopf put out last year. You know, it's a—it's 50 poets in that particular anthology writing poems that aren't necessarily directly about Trump, but just in some way addressing the times that we live in and to gather those voices together and create a kind of, you know, chorus of, of, of a demand that, that things start to shift because things are becoming unlivable at this point. I think that poets are really starting to realize that they have a voice and that there's an arena for that voice. And there, there is power. And there's always, you know, strength in numbers. So the more of us that can realize that we should use our voice to, to, to inspire people and motivate people, I think that um, the better off we'll be, not just as artists, but as an overall society or culture. I think that um, I think that being a poet does demand a deeper awareness of the person. Um, I think that you have to be in tune with yourself and your environment in a specific kind of way to be able to really engage with the things that a lot of people just don't notice because they're just not sort of, they're just not attuned to it. Um, I'm an extremely sensitive person and I don't mean in the, you know, sort of traditional, like I see a commercial and it's sad and I start crying. Um, Like I'll go to Target and I'm so overwhelmed by the lights and the sounds and the things to look at that sometimes I just start to freak out and I have to stand in a corner and not look at anything for like five minutes. And um, I, think that, I think that I am just very sort of susceptible to, to my surroundings, but I think that that's a good thing because it means that I notice... Things that I may not notice if I didn't have that sort of hypersensitivity, you know, noticing the you know the coffee grounds on the the back of the little grinder machine or um, the different lengths of the spoons that are in the cup. I just sort of see things in an interesting kind of way, um, and I think that does allow you to get past sort of those surface observations into the things that are slightly beneath the surface. Um, but I also think that being a poet um, involves a a kind of awareness of yourself, and and I don't know. Maybe that's not the right way to say it. Maybe it's more that you're more. Maybe it's more that you have a willingness to be aware of yourself, if that makes sense. Um, like you're you're willing to sort of listen to your curiosities and your your musings rather than sort of shutting down those voices. Um, so you can really allow yourself to sit with uncomfortable things and think about them, because that's what poets do. If you think about it, you know, you're you're writing about things that really affect you, and a lot of times those things are things that make you feel nervous or anxious or uncomfortable. But you're willing to sit with them because you wanna you wanna extract a poem from those feelings and those experiences. And I think that takes a lot of guts um, and a lot of courage. So I think that that poets are 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 in a lot of ways willing to open themselves up to themselves. Um, I think that those are the poets who write the best kinds of, the best kinds of poems, the work that I respond to the most. So I think everyone should write poems. I've been telling people for years that I think everyone should have a therapist because everyone just needs someone to talk to who is like an unbiased observer. Because I have one, she's fantastic. Um, I would carry her around with me everywhere if I could. It's so important to, you know, as I was just saying, like, really be able to tap into yourself and think about your experiences and, and the details of your life and and your emotions and your feelings. Um, but it's also really important to get that out of your own head. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I started writing was just because I needed to take all of the noise that was inside and somehow get it out of my body. Um... And and I think that's important for people. And most of the poets I know, would, I think, would say that it's extremely important to them to be able to have some way to articulate or, or, or exhume their uh, sort of that internal dialogue and turn it into something else It's for them and for other people, too. I think it's difficult because the poetry world has become so sort of like commodified in a way and where we have people competing for you know spots in MFA programs and people competing for prizes and poem prizes and book prizes and you know to get into conferences like Breadloaf, and and then it becomes extremely competitive and then I think sometimes it becomes less about the work and more about just beating other people and I I think that's I think that's I think it's sad Um, And unfortunately, I know a lot of people who have gotten just caught up in that competitive nature of it and have stopped writing just because they didn't want to deal with the stress of it anymore. You know, I think it's important to, to be part of that sort of poetry world if you want to be MFA programs and conferences and things like that and publishing. But you've got to try to keep it in balance with what it is that you want as a poet. I tell my students all the time, if your only desire or goal out of being a poet is to get published. I don't think that's enough to get you through the dark days of being a poet um, because it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time if you really wanna, you know, practice and become really good at it. I think that, um, that you've gotta, there has to be some sort of reason why you're doing it for yourself. And that reason can't be, you know, can't only be vanity or, or whatever your definition, you know, of success
0: is. This is Ann Bailey, and I just wanted to say a word about Green Bucket Press. Sometimes I hear people say that they're not creative, and I've given that a lot of thought. One of the problems with a commercialized and competitive society is that people are disempowered from the essential pleasure and purpose of creativity. We can practice all kinds of making because it's enjoyable and nurturing to our being as humans. We can gain skill with practice and repetition, and we don't have to be the best or make a fortune in order to profit from the doing itself. When I founded Green Bucket Press, the idea was to design and craft printed products that are interesting, functional, and enjoyable. This includes writing journals, books, decals and stickers, wall graphics, book bags, and t-shirts. In addition to our own designs, we also produce custom printed products for you, our listeners. I hope you'll explore us at greenbucketpress.com. We love to create. We love to relate. We love to communicate.
1: In terms of, like, listening to, you know, the people in power, I guess, in the poetry world, I um, I have a pretty thick skin, naturally. Um, so if someone doesn't like something that I've done, I just don't care, honestly. But I know a lot of people really do. And the thing that I tell my students and other younger writers is that, you know, if you didn't get into an MFA program or you didn't get your poem published you know, in this journal or that journal, or you didn't get accepted to, you know, Swanee Writers Conference. That was the decision of probably like three people. And they made that decision in the scheme of things rather quickly. And it's so subjective. So much of it is whether or not an editor has had a sandwich yet or whether or not, you know, she's still hungry or a question of, you know, MFA programs trying to create a diverse group of incoming students and, you know, maybe they need, are looking for more people of color and you're not a person of color. So it's not only, it's not only about the work. And I think that people need to understand that because then they won't take it so personally. They think that people do also need to understand that when it is about the work, it's about the work. It's not about the individual. It's just that they weren't responding to whatever it is that you wrote. Um, and submitted to them at that point in time. But it doesn't say anything about you as a person or your abilities as a poet. I, I hope that people can find a way to deal with the, the rejection that's just unfortunately part of our poetry world. But um, everyone has a voice, and that voice needs to be heard. And if you just keep trying, you'll find someone who wants to put your voice out there. I strongly believe in that. If you're getting rejected, the yeses are going to start coming in. They always do. They do. It's true. You just have to wait, (laughs) but they do start coming in. Um, The workshop process, I think, is uh, one of the best things that we have as writers and one of the worst things we have as writers. Um, If you have a really great, collegial, friendly, supportive group of poets in a room and you're talking about each other's work, that can be an amazing thing. You're able to hear other people's perspectives. You're able to see things from you know it from a different point of view if someone else reads your poem you hear things in a different way it can be so incredibly helpful if you're in a supportive group of people and I've experienced it you know a lot of times you're in a workshop and people aren't there to help other people they're there to sort of feel better about themselves and the own work that they've done and that's when you run into the you know to the person in the corner who's just sort of coming at your poem with an axe and telling you to get rid of things left and right that you didn't think it through. Um, but so much of that, so much of that badgering that happens in workshop is really about the person who's doing the badgering, you know, as we were saying, uh, versus the work that you've done. I think people become very self-conscious oftentimes in that particular kind of environment. And um, they're, they're taking out their insecurities on whoever's up for discussion. Um, I think there's so many other ways to sort of approach workshop that can cut out some of that that animosity if it rears its ugly head. One of the I direct a low residency MFA program, and one of my favorite things about the low res model is the fact that the students are working one on one over the course of a semester. You know, with their professor or mentor or whatever the program chooses to call them. And that's just you and one other person. And that person's job is to be supportive. And occasionally you'll find someone who isn't, but I'd say for the most part they are. And it's just this really sort of um, comfortable exchange of work where the, you know, your mentor knows what you're working on um, and is really trying to get you to get the best poems you can out of that particular time period. So you've cut out some of that extra chatter that you would get in workshop just because the conversation's more streamlined. Relationships where you have uh, trusted readers who aren't responding to your work verbally, but written uh, with written notes, I think is extremely helpful because a lot of times when I'm teaching and I have students who are being a little too combative in workshop, if I tell that student they can't talk, In the next workshop, they have to write down all that feedback. The feedback is way more toned down than what comes out of the person's mouth because then it's just, like, caught up in the emotions and the anxiety of it. So I have a lot of friends. um, I haven't done this yet, but I know a lot of people who, um, you know, once a month they email five poems to someone else and then the person emails them back with you know some feedback on those poems just written feedback and i know that that can be really really helpful too i think there are a lot of ways to sort of relieve that pressure of feeling like you need to say something in workshop and then feeling like you somehow need to defend your own work when you're talking about someone else's work i think if you can get rid of that sort of urgency Uh, to critique, then you can still get the benefits out of, out of that kind of communal, that kind of communal feedback. I love words. I think words are my favorite thing, second to my nephew and my dog. Um, I just think they're beautiful. I'm, I'm so fascinated by the fact that at some point, like someone just decided that we would have symbols for things, um, you know, and that the word "cup" would refer to this sort of vessel that holds things i just think I just think that 's completely fascinating, like half of me doesn 't understand it, and then the other half of me just thinks it's it's it 's just magical. Um, I love the sounds of words. I love the way the letters come together and make different sounds depending on sort of the larger context of the words. I love that words have multiple denotations and connotations. I I just, I love everything about them. I'm a word person first and an image person second. Like, I know a lot of people sort of think like straight out of the gate in images. They visualize something first um, when they're writing. And and the visual sort of comes to me after I've started to think about the language. I have words tattooed over my body, all over my body, my my favorite words. That's how much they mean to me, that I actually want them to be, like, printed on my flesh, uh, like the poet tattoo on my arm. I guess it was about three years ago I was having a conversation uh, with an uh, acquaintance who is a novelist, and she was you know feeling very special about herself as a novelist, and you know she said something to the effect of i would you know i wouldn 't have any problem telling someone I was a novelist, like if they said, "Well, what do you do? Oh, I write novels but then she said i would i, I wouldn 't want to do that if I was a poet." And I was like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. And she said, well, you know, because poetry is like, you know, it's just kind of. And I was like, I don't know what you're saying. She never actually finished one of those sentences. So I was so bothered by this conversation. I went home and I just sort of stewed all night about it. And then um, I got up the next morning and I was thinking about all the things that I needed to do today, that day. And one of the things that I needed to do was to get the word poet tattooed on some sort of visible part of my body. Because I'm proud of it. Um, I'm proud of what I do. I'm proud of the words that I put on paper. Um, I'm proud of the, you know, the the relationships that I built with people based on on the power of poetry. And it's it's nothing to be embarrassed about. I mean, who who wouldn't want to be a poet? I just I sometimes I, I I think those novelists are a little jealous, but that's probably for a different conversation. I definitely write on paper. I have yet to master the art of being able to write directly onto a computer or a phone or a tablet or something like that. i'm I'm very interested in the actual motions of writing, um, and I feel like I lose that if I try to type directly. Onto the computer, so I write. Um, I write on yellow legal pads. It has to be yellow. I don't know why. I have like thousands of them, um, and I have to write with a. Pe- I have to write with a pencil because I like the resistance between the pencil and the and the paper. And if I don't have that, I don't feel like I'm actually writing a poem. Then I just feel like like if I'm typing onto the computer, I feel like I'm writing an email. I'm not in like my poet zone. So. I use uh, just regular Bic mechanical pencils. Um, I can't keep up with pencil sharpeners, which is why I get mechanical ones. Yeah, I just, I just, I like that. If you listen really closely, you can hear that noise on the, and I just love that. And there's something so satisfying to me about flipping the legal pad over. So like you get to like, there's something about flipping it over the top versus around the side that I find really, really um, appealing. That's just, that's, that's the way I've always done it. And um, I think I, I think I'll keep doing that. Uh, I actually was really surprised. Um, a lot of people still work with paper. Um, I thought that most people would have really moved over to like an iPad or you know some sort of tablet or the computer at this point. But um, I was talking with uh, Jennifer Egan, the novelist. She was not the person who said that she wouldn't tell people she was a poet, just for clarification. Um, so I was talking to I was talking to Jenny, and she was saying that she writes her novels longhand on paper and I became so nervous for her because I was like, but what if like the dog comes in and eats your draft or something like that? You've lost hundreds of pages, but she said, she said, you know, exactly what I said. She can't work any other way. That's just the way she does it. And I love that. I think that, um, it makes me sad to think of, you know, the ways that we're losing touch with the physical book. You know, at this point, I'm not good with e-readers. I don't like to read things online. I still like to hold paper in my hand. I like the smell of it. I like the taste, you know, not the taste of it. That's weird. I like the smell of it. I like the touch. I I even like the paper cuts that you get as a result. I like that the pages get wrinkled and stained. It's, it's, I, I guess I'm just old school when it comes to that. I'm not really an app person for all of the reasons that I just mentioned. Um, but I'm sure that there are some really, really cool ones. I just haven't, just haven't delved into them just yet. Um, I do have tons of uh, favorite websites and podcasts, though. Um, I really like the, the Versus pod- podcasts that the Poetry Foundation is doing. Um, they're doing a lot of really cool stuff it's uh, hosted by Donna Smith and Franny Choi and they're a hoot together and they always have really great questions um, the one they posted yesterday was with Jamal May and it was fantastic um, I really used to like this podcast called Monkey Bicycle um, which I was fortunate enough to be uh, asked to be part of uh, but they stopped They stopped recording uh, over two years ago now Um Let's see. Poetry Magazine has a pretty great uh, podcast that I like listening to. I really like reading the um, Kenyan Conversations on the Kenyan Review website. Um, I subscribe to all um, Poem of the Day websites, you know, Poetry Daily, Verse Daily, the one from the Academy of American Poets. Um, I can read poetry online in that way. I can't read a whole book online. Um, And I mean, I think. I probably read most um, most of the journals that I subscribe to now are things that I read online um, I really like the rumpus I think Lithub does some really really great stuff um, at length uh, publishes long poems or excerpts from long poems and reviews and things about photography and other kinds of art I really like that website as well um, so I do, I do find ways to stay busy on the internet. Um, that's what I spend most of my, you know, non-work computer time doing, is looking at poetry websites and listening to podcasts. But when I'm writing, it still has to be old school paper and pencil. So this poem is called Little Black Boy Heads. Um, and uh, it's origin story, if you will. I was a student at University of Cincinnati, and I was sitting in a poetry reading and there was a black woman um, about two rows in front of me, and she had her little boy with her. Um, and I was just staring at the back of his head, and it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. It was just so small and, like, round and perfect. And, um, and I was just captivated by the way, um, you know, if you, see, if you see hair that's cut that short, the way you can actually see the cowlick. Um, even though the hair hasn't like risen off the head yet, I just I just thought it was magical, and he just seemed so perfect. Um, so I wanted to write a poem about how beautiful he was, and about how beautiful you know all of these little little black boys are, um, and how lucky we are to have them, and how we need to really, for real, um, acknowledge their beauty and their place in the world, and that they do have a place in the world because so many people think that uh, that that they don't unfortunately so it's one of those poems that I wrote uh years years ago I mean it it had to be seven seven eight years ago maybe even more than that um but has meant more to me as time has gone on just because of the um the things that have been happening in our in our society so this is little black boy heads up at the top there lies a cowlick I just got to wrap my finger in but can't. Their cuckabucks clip down to the root. Can't pry one strand loose with a pick. Though I could plant a kiss, perfect, on their round scalps, threads, like splinters on my lips, I'd rather fill a field with a thousand little black boy heads, ascend a white oak high, and stare until their shorn cowlicks appear to swirl no hair would move and then one by one the heads would tease with growing spirals hypnotize like air embodied branches brace for liftoff please you stubborn noggins take off your hats Some day, when i have my own i'll palm his skull and he will nap against my nipple thumb in his soft spots i'll sing of how i call him from a black field bound beneath a sky bright blue, a sun so yellow the whole span space green. His always girl, I'll sing him, fly boy, fly, then run away as fast as you can.
0: Thanks to Erica Dawson for this interview. Thanks to our sponsor, Green Bucket Press, and to cellist Craig Haltgren for our theme music. Tune in October 21st for Episode 2 and meet Davey Williams, a world class guitarist and improviser. Davey is a fascinating artist whose interviews are featured prominently in Sid Sizek's new film, Ice Pick to the Moon. Subscribe to Present Tense Podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review. You can also learn more about poet Erica Dawson at greenbucketpress.com slash present-tense-podcast. Until next time.